You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. For those of you maybe who are uh, visiting for the holidays, we've been studying Romans as a church now for um, a good while, and we've been studying uh, Romans chapter 8 for the better part of a couple of months together. Um, So many... Uh, glorious truths and riches in these verses. And we come now to the end of it in verses 35 uh, through 39, words that I trust that uh, you'll uh, remember and and, uh, probably know most by heart already. Uh, Some uh, regard these as the climax, I think certainly the climax of this chapter, and maybe the the highest point even of, uh, of some even would say even of the book of Romans itself. And uh, wonderful, uh, powerful, glorious words. Romans chapter 8, and uh, we'll look at them together. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we, we pause and give you thanks. We thank you in this moment for your word and acknowledge, Lord, our uh, humility, Lord, that your word is, the, uh, is your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, all-sufficient word for us. And uh, we pray now that you would help us to have ears to hear it. And that these truths, that them words that many of us know already, but Lord, you would drive these truths deep in our hearts. And you would transform us and change us in the midst of it. And I pray that you would use me, Lord, today as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's great theme in this chapter has been the assurance of uh, our salvation, beginning with the uh, incredible declaration there in verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he ends this great chapter with Uh, telling us that there is now no separation from his love, no condemnation for those in Christ, and no separation from his love. And between these two truths, of course, are many other assurances that he gives us, the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives uh, upon our salvation, uh, how he adopts us as sons and daughters. He bears witness with our spirit that we're his children. Uh, he makes sure that to know that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and th- that this glory that, that is coming is not worth comparing with any 
suffering that we must endure in this life. In fact, he tells us everything that happens to us, verse 28, uh, God uses to bring about his good and perfect purposes in our lives. Purposes that he tells us are, have their grounding in eternity past uh, as God foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us and one day will glorify us. In other words, the saving work that he began in us, he will bring to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The one who begun our salvation will take us all the way home. There is nothing that can stop his saving plans for our lives. Isn't that wonderful truth, church? And though we thought that Paul had said perhaps all that could be said about it, he then, we then discover that he asked five unanswerable questions uh, to end this great chapter, to drive home his point. And I remind you of Stott's assessment of these questions. It's, he writes, he hurls these questions into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. Paul challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer these questions and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer, he writes. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. You remember the first question, the first four questions we looked at last week. The first question was the opposition question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is there any conceivable power that can prevent, interrupt, stop, God's saving purposes from being fulfilled in our lives? And the glorious answer is there is no one. That does not mean that Christians will not have adversaries, but what it does mean is that none of those adversaries will prevail because of this simple truth. God is for us, he says. He's for us. The second question was the provision question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says if God did not uh, spare, even spare his own son from us, giving him over to die for our sins on the cross, is there anything that God would withhold from us? And again, the answer is nothing. The prosecution question, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, if the God of the universe, the highest authority and power imaginable in the whole universe, if he declares you righteous in salvation, right with himself, right being saved, if he declares you saved, who could possibly stand and undo that salvation. All the accusations will come, right? And they do come, but no one can undo our salvation before God. I thought there'd be an amen or two even as we went back over these. These are wonderful truths, right, church? The fourth question was the condemnation question, verse 34, who is to condemn? And once again, if we stop there, we would say, well, there's a lot of people that condemn, but all of their attempts to condemn will fail Verse 34, because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. In other words, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is at the right hand of God right now 
pleading our righteousness based on his own shed blood for us. Who is there left who could stand between Jesus and the Father in this way? The answer is there is no one left to condemn us. The fifth question is where we turn today, and it is the separation question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's interesting. What's fascinating about this particular question is that Paul takes more space to answer this question than he did the first four questions. He takes uh, uh, several verses here, more space to answer this, and it should, uh, that should strike us as significant right from the beginning. It seems to be, uh, pastorally speaking, that, that this question is where kind of the rubber meets the road for many of us. It's one thing to be able to give uh, theological answers to the first four questions, which we can do. We can do readily. We can look to Romans. We can see these doctrines and these truths and answer them. But it seems also true that one could also give the right answers to the first four questions theologically and yet struggle with this one of whether you might become separated from the saving love of Christ Jesus. And the clearest indicator of, of that, I think, is, is, is the way that we, we tend, and, and, and I think a, a lot, if not most, of, if all, we tend to respond when something goes wrong in our lives. When difficulties or trials come, how often we wonder, does God really love me? Sinclair Ferguson likens it to that childhood game that, that perhaps you played where you, you took the flower and you, you put off a petal one at a time. Uh, he loves me. He loves me not. And how often we do that as adults. Good things happen in our lives. We say, God loves us. And then difficult things come and we say, oh, he must not love me. And back and forth we go in this thinking that God is for me. No, wait, maybe he's, he's against me after all. And it may be as simple as, you know, I, you, know you, you have a flat tire on the way to work, and as you're changing the tire, it just so happens to pour down rain, and you think about all the bad things that are happening, you think, God must be against me. All the way to someone I love has been hurt or taken from me. God must be against me. And it seems to be that a, a part of the basic human fabric to, to question God's love based on the circumstances that come into and out of our lives. He loves me. He loves me not. And, and the fact that Paul takes five verses to answer this question, I think, is his way of kind of putting his finger on this weak and unhealthy spot in our lives. And Paul, as he's been doing, he takes this amazing, wonderful, glorious gospel truth and he applies it to these frail and fickle hearts. Boyce comments here next to the bare facts of salvation, the greatest lesson a Christian can learn is that nothing can separate him or her from the love of God and Christ Jesus. Nothing. 
that every Christian is bound to God by a gracious, unchanging, eternal, and indestructible love. This is Paul's exclamation point, if you will, in an entire paragraph to this whole chapter, to this whole beautiful gospel. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We already know the answer, right, church? No one and nothing. And yet, why? Why does Paul continue the question because by naming these potential separators, Paul wishes to cause us to, to, to stop and think about what you are saying when you say that no one and nothing can separate me. He wants us to think deeply about the very things that often threaten it. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Shall these things separate us? He lists seven things there, seven great forces that, that are, are, are arrayed against Christians. And, and he's reminding us that his saving love is not severed in our sufferings. It's not severed. The word tribulation has to do with pressure, has the idea of pressing out grain on the harvest floor. And certainly, Paul means here to provoke images in us, I think, of God's people being pressed down forcefully so that it feels like they're literally being crushed, pressed down. The word distress is a couple of different words put together to mean a, a narrowing of space, if you will. It's, it's this feeling of, of you're being confined more and more to a tight area. When you're under distress, you're running out of space. You're running out of options. The, and, and, and the world and its values are closing in on you and you feel less and less space to move, less and less space to function and to live. Where, like, like you're being suffocated by hardship, suffocated by immorality, by tribulation around you. A third word is persecution and has the idea of being pursued by someone who wants to do you harm, <laughs> whether verbally, materially, or even physically. And then the last words, maybe some of uh, the harm that comes from those first words, nakedness, referring to poverty that has come upon you, danger, referring to, to fears that are, are overpressing in on you, and then the sword, which is death itself. And these aren't make-believe or hypotheticals. These are, are realities. These are things, by the way, that Paul has experienced himself. 2 Corinthians 11, you can read his testimony and other places where he's been experiencing many of these things. In fact, Paul wrote Romans from the house of his friend Gaius while he was in Corinth. And, and I'm not sure, uh, perhaps, perhaps he, he was, I'm not sure that neither Paul or the Christians in Rome knew how much they would need these words here in Romans chapter 8. Because history tells us that within a decade of this letter, many of these very Christians in Rome who received this letter were brutally slaughtered. 
in the Roman amphitheaters. And even Paul himself fell to the sword, being beheaded for his faith, history tells us, just a few years after this letter was written. Oh, how they needed to hear this. Shall these things separate us? And this is not meant to incite fear in you, but I wonder if today's church in America can hear this message and will hear this message. Because I think for too long we've avoided this message or we've watered down this message in, in our pulpits and in our classrooms and our, our churches. In some circles we've, we've propped up um, uh, an end time t- theology that says that we don't need to worry about tribulation and troubles because we're going to be taken from, taken raptured out of those things anyway, despite the fact that the New Testament is constantly exhorting and, and preparing us for these troubles. Nearly every page of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry are filled with warnings that trouble will hound Christians every step of the way to glory. But far too long we've neglected this truth in the American church. We don't talk about these things much. We neglect it in our evangelism. We, we tend to uh, lace our evangelistic strategies, strategies with, with the, the sedative of easy believism. We invite people to church services to be entertained. Come hear about movies. Come see at Christmas time our light shows and, and so forth. Come see it snow in the sanctuary. Come be wild. Come be entertained. And then on the end, we hope that after they've been thoroughly entertained, we can invite them to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. And then later on, we wonder why so many of them never come back. Why so many of them went away? Like Jesus said, hearing the word, sprouting up quickly, and then when persecution, tribulation comes, falling away. Why does that happen? In part because we've not been honest and we've not been faithful with the message or the method, church. You cannot separate the gospel from suffering. And yet over and over again, we've sought to do so in the church. What Paul is saying here is that these things, this list, this suffering is not an unusual part of the Christian life at all, but it's actually the normal part of the Christian life. Notice even as Paul mentions these things, he he turns to the Bible for an explanation. He doesn't turn to his feelings or his opinions or his thoughts. His mind goes to scriptures. In verse 36, he's quoting Psalm 44, verse 2. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why does he go there? His point is to say that none of this suffering is an unusual part of the Christian life. That this is quite normal. These things that happen to us are not out of the ordinary. In fact, we were never promised in the Scripture that these kinds of things wouldn't come. If you believed that, if you believed something different, then you didn't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That the reason that we find ourselves so panicked when suffering comes is because it still hasn't dawned on us that the Savior that we follow was himself despised and rejected by men. Are we surprised by this? Do we forget the fact that we've been singing about he was born in a manger, he was born in humiliation, that his whole life, every step was opposed and marked with suffering? Do we forget the fact that his call to us from the beginning was to deny ourselves and take up our cross as an instrument of death and follow him? This Christianity is not a broad road in which everyone is on, a nice and easy and popular and comfortable road. It is a narrow way, he said. Few find it. And just as Jesus suffered, we will suffer too. God's promise to us is not that the suffering will never afflict us, but here's what he is promising. It will never separate us from his love. What a truth. And church, that's a truth we better start clinging to because times are changing. The winds of the Antichrist are blowing stronger and stronger every day, and they're blowing here in America as well. Paul's confidence is contagious and breathtaking because he he takes it even a step further in that Christ's saving love makes us conquerors even through suffering. It's really an amazing statement. It's a beautiful, beautiful one there in verse 37 when he says no and in all of these things, referring to verse 35, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying to us that our suffering, rather than separating us from Christ's saving love, actually affirms it more and more. It's quite very the opposite of where our minds go when we're we're facing suffering. It has the opposite effect that our adversaries and persecutors would hope that in every pain and misery and suffering, Paul says, we become more than conquerors. He, He kind of makes up a word here that means super conqueror, more than a conqueror. It implies that that through these things are going to come a sweeping victory, an overwhelming victory that comes through trials and suffering. How can this be? And you remember, he's already told us part of the answer in verse 28, that as these trials come upon us, they are only working to our greater good. Everything that happens, he says, Conform is conforming us to Christ and bringing us into God's family. And no matter what happens to us, nothing can thwart God's saving purposes in our lives. He's told us that, that however painful that the suffering is here in the here and now, the greater the glory is going to be in heaven. 
And in these things, he says, these things, rather than destroying our salvation, they actually make us super conquerors. The assurance of Christ's saving love, apart from any of these things, has already made us unconquerable, he says. There's something more, though, I think, that makes us more than conquerors. He says, notice the language, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we might expect that to say, Paul David says something like, through him who loves us. But notice he said, loved us in the past tense. And I think this shows us that Paul is very likely thinking of the very place in which God proved his love for us as sinners. And you know that place, right, church? Where is it at? The cross. Yes. He's saying to us that since Christ proved his love for us by his sufferings, our sufferings, therefore, cannot possibly separate us from him. No, when we share in his sufferings, we should take them as evidence of our union with Christ, not a cause for doubting his love. Even our sufferings confirm that we are his, and our sufferings are confirming that he loved us, that no matter what happens in this life, that love cannot be undone. We have already conquered through the cross of Jesus Christ. What an incredible love. Donald Gray Barnhouse explained it like this. The love of Christ was eternal, for it was that love which moved him to leave heaven's throne and come down to this earth to redeem us. He says that love was deep, for it was that love which urged him on to the end of the road as he humbled himself to the death, even the death of the cross. That love was broad, for it was that love which opened the arms of God to all the world of sinners. And that love is unchanging, for it is that love which comes to us today in the midst of our need, whatever it may be, and takes us out of the darkness and into light, and from doubt to certainty, and from death to life, he says. In our text, that love is presented to us in the phase of its permanence. God stoops to tell us that Christ is not fickle. What amazing condescension that such a verse should be in the Bible. The Lord leaves heaven and comes down to earth. He allows himself to be led to the judgment hall where he is buffeted and spat upon. He walks to Calvary and permits men to nail him to the cross. From the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see these things happen and he tells us that they have happened for us. For us. We look upon him with amazement and we wonder if he really means it. And then he smiles at us and he tells us that he really does mean it and he really does love us and that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from that love. What a wonderful truth. You see why Paul would say that we're more than conquerors here? 
Because nothing can conquer the one whom God has set his eternal love. Nothing can change it. Nothing can separate it. And Christian, you should never doubt this. No matter what comes into your life, no matter what hardship, you keep looking to the cross and never forget that you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you and gave himself for you. In the final verses, Paul concludes that Christ's saving love is more powerful than anything. Anything. That's what, that's what he says. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else And all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You think about, again, this passage in verse 28. Paul began with, we know. We know that he works all things together. In verse 38, he says, I am sure. I'm sure of it. I'm convinced. I've become convinced, and I remain convinced. And then he chooses 10 items that someone might think could possibly separate us from the love of Christ. And, and he, he, he just spans them very quickly. He opens his list of threats with life and death. And he says, neither of them, nor life nor death, can separate you from his love. Nor can any supernatural beings. There's no angels or rulers or powers, he says, that can separate you. Nor can time itself, anything in the present, he writes, or the future can hinder his love for you. And finally, he says, nothing in space, high or low, above or below, in heaven or hell, nothing can separate you from his love. In fact... We cannot even separate ourselves from his love. He writes, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You remember back to chapter 5, verse 5. You write that reference down, maybe look it up later. But he, Paul talked there about how the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is a love that will never let us go. The great assurance of this passage, the great assurance of our salvation, is not in our love for Him, Stott writes, which is always frail and fickle and faltering, but rather the great assurance is His love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. Hallelujah for that. Now, one more thing I want you to notice in closing is why does Paul add the words, in Christ Jesus our Lord? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy Jones had uh, something to say about that. He writes, he does so because there were people then, as there are people now, who, though they are not Christians, say that they believe in the love of God. And yet they reject the gospel. They do not believe in a God who is wrathful against sin, 
a God who must punish sin, a God who sent his son to Calvary and smote him there because of our sin. That thought is terrible to them. They imagine that they believe in the love of God, but the apostles' answer is that no love of God can be known except in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. What an important reminder today. The love of God is not some kind of a man-made, philosophical, you-thought-it-up, your opinion, all of these things. God's love is a holy love, right? A righteous love, a just love. And mark this, what Paul says, a love that is always in Christ. No one will ever know the love of God accepts that he believes and trusts himself to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. That's why all of this is tied together today. To, To believe in the love of God is to believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is to believe that he is the Son of God. It is to believe in his incarnation his humanity, his deity. It is to believe in his righteous, perfect, holy life that he lived. It is to believe in his substitutionary death on the cross in the place for our sins. It is to believe his resurrection, that through it we've been justified, declared righteous by God and saved. This is the only way one can ever know the love of God or ever be involved in it. It is to believe on the Son, Jesus Christ. Are you persuaded, like Paul, of these things? Are you convinced? Has His love been poured out in your heart by His Holy Spirit? If so, you can rejoice today knowing that nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing. But if you have not trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ. You are not in Christ. He is not your Savior and Lord. Don't pretend today that you can believe and know the love of God, but rather humble yourself. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. As we close this morning, let's reflect on Jesus' love for us. Lord, thank you for the word that is here, a beautiful word, a powerful word, Lord, and yet also some troubling words as well. But Lord, we rejoice that even in our sufferings that we cannot be severed from your love if we are in Christ. And that these sufferings make us more than conquerors because you loved us through the cross by giving yourself for us. So Lord, once again, we ask that you would help us. Help us in the midst of a season that is pulling us and pulling our hearts in all kinds of different directions for our eyes to be opened and see this incredible love, these incredible promises, Lord, that you have given to us. May our hearts be warmed and encouraged and strengthened today. And for those who don't know you, Lord, we pray that they might be convicted.
and that they might turn from their sins and trust in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.